In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, please lift your hands in prayer with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and pray that you would add your blessing to it, that we would, we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would bless this time to bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray that this would be a time where we all draw near, no matter where we're at on a spiritual spectrum, that we would all draw near to listen to what you are saying, what this, what this scripture says to us and what it invites us to. We pray for your blessing on the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to invite... My brother, my friend, Pastor Glenn Hoberg up here. Um, before there was any of all of this going on, um, this brother was doing campus ministry uh, in a very difficult place, uh, working his butt off, wondering what in the world he was doing. And then he got a call to come to Washington, D.C., uh, sort of Macedonian call, come help us to plant this church. And he came down here, and the Lord has added a blessing to his labors, uh, his faithful building of a team. And I'm grateful to be a part of his team, and I'm grateful that we get to hear from him this morning. And so I invite you to receive him with open hearts and open ears. Thank you for being Thank here, you, brother. brother. Good morning. I'll tell you, it is so much fun to be with you all in the morning, just uh I know you get tired out with your kids, but I just love it. Uh, 
you know, I, my kids are older now. They're 18 and 20. So all this action, I accidentally, I've apologized to the family. I headbutted actually one of them. You know, they were swinging by and I leaned down and, and uh, so I got close, uh, closer than I expected to one. But um, it really is uh, such a joy to be here and to be in your new worship space, huh? Amen for this. It's just really great. Um, and I'm glad to be here during Advent. I was thinking, um, you know, I grew up in a non-religious home, and we didn't practice Advent, of course. It was sort of a Christmas Eve party and gifts. And then once I became a Christian, I'd maybe hit a service and Christmas Eve, read a couple verses. So it wasn't later until later in my life that I began to experience the blessing of a whole month of meditating on God's coming in the flesh. I mean, it really is, um, it's a blessing. For those of you that have been raised in the church, I want you to consider that a blessing. That You get to spend weeks to think about that. So I've loved Advent, I love what we do together, and I know we've been working off this same passage for the last couple weeks, and it's such a rich passage, we could spend a year on it, and I know you've heard a sermon on the glory of Jesus and the Word becoming flesh. And this morning, I wanted to settle our minds a bit on Jesus as the life. Jesus as life. Now, the title's Born to Live. I don't like giving titles early because by the time I get to the sermon, I've changed what I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about life, but if you don't hear the phrase born to live, don't be like, well, why, what was the sermon about? Uh, I did something else. Um, so what I want to talk about is uh, what is the life that John is talking about here? And more importantly, how do we get in on it? How do we get in on it? So let's just stop. Well, I, I'm going to pray again. Thanks. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. Each one of us is hungry and thirsty. We're too desperate to play church, too desperate to play religion. We pray that you would meet each of us in our place of need, in Christ's name, amen. amen. In recent years, there's been a lot more discussion about quality of life. In fact, I think the holidays kind of naturally raise it. People think, you know, do I like my life? Is my life good? Do I have the things in my life that make me happy? Quality of life. I recently came across an article in Forbes magazine, and this was the title. Quality of life, everyone wants it, but what is it? Because as you go into the research, there are just so many answers. You just can't pin it down to three or four. I mean, these are some of the things on the list. Physical health, psychological state, level of independence, family, education, wealth, religion, optimism, local services, transportation, employment, housing, environment, social relationships, cultural perspective, personal goals, and ability to regulate negative thoughts and emotion. That's a lot, right? For me, I'd add music. Maybe Miles Davis. I've got to have him in there. For Russ, I'm sure he'd add barbecue. I mean, there's certain things we've got to have, right? To have a quality of life. And the article ends with this phrase, subjectivity appears to be, the fundament, appears to be fundamental to our understanding of quality of life, which is a fancy way to say, basically, it's all over the map. And I wonder, are we starting in the wrong place? 
Are we not looking deep enough when it comes to this idea of life? Uh, when I became a Christian, something shifted in my life, and that is my quality of life moved from merely physical and emotional to spiritual. That became the center for how my quality of life was understood. And you might hear the same in John's words. John uses the word life over 35 times in this book, in this letter. It's much on his mind, and it's much on his mind because it was much on Jesus' mind. If you read the Gospel of John, you hear Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I've come to bring abundant life. And then in chapter 5, he gives us a nice little summary of what he understands life to be. This is what he says. Truly, truly, and when Jesus says truly, you always have to listen to Jesus. But when he says truly, truly, he's giving you a hint. Really listen to me here. This is amen, true, true. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Now, you might notice that Jesus put a qualifier before life, eternal life. And at that point, I think most of us, our eyes glaze over because we, we really see eternal life in the same way we see life insurance. You know, it's something that I'm glad I have, but it's like way down the road. I don't see a whole lot of relevance now for eternal life. But you need to understand something. And you maybe heard it when I said it. Jesus didn't say you will have life, but you have life. He has possession of it. This is what uh, theologians will call realized eschatology. Let me put it in a much easier way to understand it. Do you ever get a chance to open a Christmas gift early? Right? It's that thing where, you, although Christmas is on the 25th, and the gift is down the road, it's a future gift, you get to open it early and enjoy it. Each of us has a chance to open up eternal life now and to have it as a gift now, and to enjoy it. That's what Jesus is saying. So we open the future now. What does that look like as we open that gift? Let me mention two things. The first thing is a judgment-free life. Now, I think as I say that, most everybody in our city would nod their head and say, I like that, because modern people don't like people that are judgy. No judgy people. Right? I don't like people that judge uh, I want a judgment-free life. I don't want anybody to pass judgment on what I think and how I act and what I feel. But, you know, that's not what you, that's essentially you want to be above judgment, meaning you want to be the judge. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that he has authority to execute judgment. He gets to be the judge. And when you think about it, we really don't want to live in a world that is above judgment. I mean, lately we've had this, you know, heart-wrenching campaign, but critically important campaign where men that had abused their position of power in the relationship with women had victimized women. The Me Too campaign, right? It's a good and right thing that that happens. None of us wants to live in a world where men or anybody feel like they're above judgment, right? But think about it this way. 
If God was able to go to every person in your life that knew you, and he was able to say, has this person ever been unkind to you? Has Glenn ever been harsh to you? Has he ever taken advantage of you for his own means? You know, there'd be a lot of people tweeting me too. Same with you, right? None of us is above judgment. All of us is under judgment. So how do we get this eternal life where we don't pass into judgment? Well, it's because God entered the world and bore our judgment. This is the good news of Christmas. It's actually the bewildering thing about Christmas, that the very one that had authority to execute judgment endured judgment. That the very one that should have been showered with blessing was seared with a curse. That the very one who was life took on death. This is the amazing, the stunning thing about the Christmas story. And for any of us and all of us that avail ourselves of that promise, we get grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It just keeps going. This is what he says. And part of that grace is judgment-free life. Not part, it's the center of it. I mean, I'm asking you this. When you think about your life before God, do you realize that there is not an ounce of wrathful anger toward you, not a spot of guilt and shame, not a hint of disappointment and regret of the way that God looks at you and sees you. It's a judgment-free life that as Jesus stands freely in all his righteousness in heaven, you stand right beside him in that same way. And I think if we begin to open that present now, it looks like a few things. One is we stop believing that the ceiling of God's judgment is going to fall in on us. Um, you know, I'm a real dreader. Anybody else here a dreader? I'm always just dreading something. I mean, God, get me, you know, I always chalk it up to maybe it's because I'm from Pittsburgh and maybe it's because I got Irish blood in me or something like that. But, you know, anytime, in fact, uh, you know, I... I told the story. I don't think I've, I've told it here. I don't know. Preachers are always telling stories, but you, you like I've heard it. But, um, you know, I remember several years ago when the Pittsburgh Steelers were on the verge of like a minute away from winning the Super Bowl. I mean, it was in the bag. It was like we were 10 points ahead. And I called up my brother and I said, man, what do you think? It seems like we got it. And he said, we'll see. <laughs> we're always expecting the worst. You know, it's just that idea of dread. Uh, when I was younger, there was a cartoon of Gulliver's Travels, and there was this character named Glum. And I, you know, I still hear his voice. In fact, I went on YouTube and found, you know, I couldn't, was this in my memory or was it real? It was real, you know, and this, anything, anything, anytime anything happens, he's like this, we're done. We'll die for sure. It's that, that's his whole role. He's just always Glum. He lives up to his name, right? I mean, we're like this, right? A minute after God's blessing, we're thinking, well, uh, where's, when's the bad thing going to happen? We think there's a judgment ready to fall in on us. Imagine this. Christmas Day, you give your niece or nephew or your son and daughter, you give them this wonderful gift, and they open it up, and then they go like this. And you go, what are you doing? You will say, I, I expect that you're going to yell at me next. Or rather, they open up the gift, then they go sit and time out. You go, what are you doing? Well, you were good to me. I'm expecting I'm going to get punished next. 
That's craziness. But we act that way with God. I mean, he's going to bless me with something, he's gonna, and then I, he's going to get me on the other side. A judgment-free life means that I get rid of that sort of thinking. Ding dong, judgment is dead. No guilt in life, no fear in death, as the lyric says. But there's a second way, too. We stop believing that God is out to get us. Uh, the, you know, the late comedian Rodney Dangerfield, you know, he's the guy that, you know, I don't get no respect. I don't get no respect. He had a little routine where it said, I don't get no respect. Uh, you know, it was a holiday, and my wife bought my, my son a gift of bow and arrows. Then she bought me a shirt with a bullseye on, you know? And I think this is, this is the sort of thing we think, you know, that I've got a bullseye on me, and, do, and God, is, God is after me. The only thing God is shooting at you is grace, is goodness, is mercy, and love. Right? I mean, this is one of the blessings of eternal life. But it's not just a judgment-free life. It's a beloved life. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Then God gave, God gave that very group the right to become, right? He talks about he came, they did not know him. My, my wife and I just got done watching season two of Stranger Things. Anybody a Stranger Things fan? I'm not going to ruin it for you. But, you know, in it, in it you know, one of, the, one of the kids, I'll leave it general, one of the kids gets basically possessed, overcome with this dark alien force, so much so that he can't recognize his mother. Well, you know, sin has the same effect upon us. It doesn't matter how good you are, how bright you are, how dedicated you are, each of us in our natural state will not recognize our maker and the lover of our soul. And so when that kid finally gets liberated from that dark force, the first thing he does is he hugs his mom. Well, the gospel says the same thing. When you and I get liberated from that force, the first thing we see is Abba, Father. We see our Father. Uh, in the book of Galatians, we get Paul's little version of the Christmas story where he says... At the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem us from being under judgment, under the law. Why? So that we might be adopted as sons and daughters and cry, Abba, Father. That I might become a son or daughter of God and that I might cry, Papa. And that I might have him for my very own. That I would be beloved. So you understand, at Christmas, when the Son of God came into the world, God was initiating a great adoption program where he would adopt sons and daughters into his life. And John goes on to tell us about that in another letter where he says, Beloved, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, John was the one that was known as the beloved disciple. I think what it meant was he understood Jesus' love probably a little bit better than the rest of the guys. But the love... And he says, if you could just see what great love God has given upon those of us. So much of the quality of life thing really revolves around this, doesn't it? I mean, some of the quality of life is, I, you know, I want a healthy body, I want this and that. But so much of it has to do, I wish I could get to that point where I get that attaboy, girl, right? I get that pat on my back. I get to that place in my field. I get to that place financially. I get to that place where I finally feel like I'm beloved. The only thing is we're trying to get it from the world. We're trying to get it from the city. 
How do you open that present now? You and I abandon the mindset that says, well, when I get to heaven, then I'll really be close with God. You know, when I get there, I'll be close to him. We are told now that we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Dearly loved, and that we've been predestined in love as sons and daughters of the Lord. If you want to see your quality of life go through the roof, start at a judgment-free and a beloved life. Make that your ground zero. Make that your center and work out from there. But let's, let's get to this last part. How do we get it? He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, let me see a show of hands here. How many of you remember the day you decided to be born? You don't, you don't, you don't decide to be born, right? You have nothing to say in it. Well, you know, the virgin birth is a great, it's not only uh, unique and miraculous, it's, it's instructive to us. It teaches us something. And this is what it teaches us. Just as God created life in Mary's womb where there was no life, he must go in and create life in each and every one of us. This is what he does. Jesus was all about giving life. And it's really amazing when you think about it. God implants his divine life his life into us. Second Peter will say this, that uh, we now participate in the divine nature because of what he's given to us. He has to create new life in us. He had a very famous conversation with Nicodemus, right? A teacher of Israel about this very thing. You gotta be born again. You gotta have new life. And this was radical for those in Israel. Because they had forgotten, many had forgotten, not all, but many had forgotten where the source of life came from. John mentioned some of these things. Those that think about heritage or lineage, blood, will, flesh of the man. Those that really thought their life came from those things. It came from, you know, the, the ethnicity that I, that I descended from. It came from the religious heritage. It came from all these different things. But God must make you spiritually alive. Going to church won't make you spiritually alive. Taking an eat, pray, love journey around the world will not make you spiritually alive. Right? I mean, you will not be spiritually alive through a number of things that you try to do. God must make you spiritually alive. Which means all of us are alive by grace. And this is good news because it means that that sonship is available to any and all. You see, this was what was so mind-blowing for the non-Jewish people because they realized it wasn't just this descendant one, this group, but he's saying, John's opening it up, saying it doesn't matter about heritage and lineage. It's open to any and all this morning, any and all, that would want to be adopted into God's family. It's by grace. And what's the effect of that? I, I think it's this. I think it's humility. I've found in my own life, the longer you live as a Christian, and the more you experience God's lavish blessing, and you see him just fruitifying your life, right? You see him just, all these different areas. And, and then you maybe look at someone that has uh, not either received him yet, rejected him, you see bad things are going wrong, and it's just easy to think, you know, I'm just a little bit better. 
just a little bit better. I, I find myself just having this little pride instead of thinking, but for the grace of God, but for the mercy of God, none of us would experience that joy where we look around and go, my life is blessed. His initiation. And if you're someone here looking into the Christian faith, it's really instructive as well, because what John is telling you here is don't waste your time on the pilgrimage. And don't waste your time on all these different ways you think that you can become spiritually alive. Just begin with this prayer. God, I am dead without you. God, I have no life without you. I see that. I see that the, the arrow points towards selfishness instead of others. And at that point, ask him to give you life. Would you give me life? But you know, the birth cry of life is something that John also talks about here. That scene in every film, or if you've been in the delivery room, right, we're all waiting for that time where it's like, you know, the, the mother's crying and screaming out, and there's this silence, then you hear, right, it's that cry. It's like, yeah, life is here. You know what the birth cry for the Christian is? It's faith. That's what it is. John tells us that. He talks about, you know, those that receive, refuse to receive him. Jesus had some pretty intense arguments with the religious leaders about this. And one centered on this where they said, listen, you don't understand that we're sons of Abraham. We come from that line. And Jesus said, God could raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. Don't forget that Abraham was what? The father of faith. And so it's the children of faith. But then you have to get in, what does faith mean? Is it intellectual agreement? Is it basically just when I'm warm and fuzzy for God? Is it, uh, I don't know, wishful thinking? What's faith? Again, John helps us here. He gives us a definition. He says it means to believe. Those that believed and received, believe means more than agree. It means personal trust. Those that personally trust in God. And then he says, receive, which means to welcome or submit your life to. This is what faith looks like. So, you know, I would ask you, as I would ask myself, do you sometimes confuse faith? Do you understand faith to be, okay, I agree with this worldview. You know, I, I sort of raised it, it makes sense to me. I agree with the morality of the Ten Commandments. I agree with basically the way the Christian world kind of, uh, the Christian faith kind of shapes the world. I agree with all that. Have you thought that that's faith? Because what you're lacking is trust, right? Trust is about a relationship. I can know lots about you. The question is, do I trust you? And do you trust me? But the other one, receive. You know, I would ask you, do you embrace God insofar as he makes you happy and makes you feel connected? But then there are these other teachings in the Christian faith that really repulse you. And then that, see, the question is, do you submit to God? You know, these are both challenging things, aren't they? Because he calls me not only trust him, but to submit my life to him. This is what faith is. C.S. Lewis said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. This is what we're talking about here. Just for a moment, consider how much Israel believed when Jesus came. 
I mean, they believed in Moses. They believed in the law. They believed in the Ten Commandments. They believed in the acts that God has done. They believed in the prophets. They even believed that the Messiah was coming. But many did not receive him. What happened there? Trust in submission. And so, you and I have to ask ourselves, am I after a quality of life or am I after Jesus? Am I after the son who was born? Am I after those very things that he would give to me or God, my, God himself? Now, um, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning that sometimes it's easier to wait when you can open up a gift, right? Uh, or maybe to use another analogy, if you're at a wedding and, you know, it's, uh, you're hungry, it's, it's, it's easier to wait for the feast when they have a little uh, cocktail appetizer hour, right? When you get to taste a little bit of that stuff before you get in, and you're going to have to listen to all those long speeches, right? Well, this is the beauty of it. You and I can open up eternal life. We can begin to eat on it. We can begin to feast on it. We can begin to enjoy us. And as Pastor Russ said earlier, it will help us to wait until the whole thing is unveiled to the great feast, to the second advent where Christ returns. Let's pray together that God will give us grace to wait in faith. Father, we thank you we can wait together. We can be a community. This is an odd thing to be doing right now in our city. Here's a, this group of people gathered on a Sunday morning in a world that's clamoring for quality of life, and we are singing and praying and waiting together. We thank you so much for Jesus and his Holy Spirit, which enables us to think and to believe and to trust and submit. I pray that you would give us him this morning, that we might wait faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.